Less dependence on the financial sector and more investment in green energy policy and the renewal of our manufacturing base is the most talked about element of Britain's economic revival. But it's not just wind power that will come to the fore. Other energy sources, such as helium, may gain new significance too. Dr William Nuttall is Assistant Director of the ESRC, Electricity Policy Research Group, and a Senior Lecturer in Technology Policy. Well, the relationship between helium and energy is an interesting thing. As I've, uh, I've said, it's a, it's a byproduct of natural gas. So it's a, it's a byproduct of, of, of one of the fuels of, let's say, the 20th century. And yet it's extremely important for certain energy options of the second half of the 21st century. And here I'm broadly thinking about various forms of nuclear energy. Um, it's fair to say that helium is not much used in, in energy industry today. But... Um, Advanced nuclear energy systems are likely to need a lot of helium, uh, and I'm thinking particularly of two types. One is um, fission power plants, so the fundamental physics of today's nuclear power plants. Uh, increasingly wanting to go to higher temperatures, uh, would use helium as, as the gas to turn the, um, the generator set. So rather than boiling water to steam, you, you'd, you'd run helium through the generator set and use that to turn the turbines and much greater uh, efficiency. The other future nuclear energy source that could need a lot of helium uh, is nuclear fusion energy. If nuclear fusion energy is, is uh, going, to, going to work, it's going to rely, at least in its conventional form of magnetic fusion, on very, very large magnets. And the simplest and, and, and most obvious route to making those magnets work is to make them of so-called superconductors, which have to operate at very, very low temperatures. And helium has the fundamental property that it's, um, it's the, the coldest liquid th that there is. Uh, and so uh, it, it, it boils at uh, minus 269 uh, uh, centigrade. And so, uh, yes, it's a, it's a wonderful cryogenic liquid for cooling magnets. And uh, the fusion power station of the future would have some of the largest magnets all cooled with liquid helium. So, so these two nuclear energy sources of advanced fission power systems and nuclear fusion systems are likely to need a lot of helium in the late 21st century. But where will it come from, given, as I say, that it's a byproduct of the natural gas industry? And I hear that for climate change reasons, we're supposed to be getting out of fossil fuels. Dr Nuttall says that change in the demand and supply curve will influence helium markets elsewhere, moving away from the USA model of production. I think the, the relationship of the United States to, to the future of helium will, will, will be very interesting. Um, will the United States uh, really um, ramp down their uh, strategic supplies? Um, will they be largely replaced by new international entrants from the liquefied natural gas industry in particular? Um, because uh, increasingly the natural gas industry is moving to um, shipments based on liquefied cold natural gas, and that favors helium extraction. So uh, helium is going to be coming from more and more places from around the world. Uh, it's going to be... Um, uh, coming from more places, perhaps with a larger number of players. And there's even the prospect that um, some adventurous companies might say, well, we won't just extract helium as a byproduct of natural gas. We'll actually go looking for helium gas under the ground just for the helium, uh, exploration for helium. And th 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 there's just the first signs that this is underway. So I, I think looking ahead, there, there will be change. There'll be change on the demand side for helium. There'll be change of the helium supply. 
but the next 10 years are going to be very interesting indeed. For those who are established global operators, management lessons about developing your products and selling into those new global markets are always being learnt. There's nothing like being at the coalface in a crisis. Toyota president Akio Toyodo has apologised for the recall of millions of cars across the world. But Dr George Olcott of Cambridge Judge Business School says management can learn and move on into a new future. Clearly, the recall problem places Toyota in a very difficult position. Uh, the climate, uh, the economic climate itself is, is very poor for cars. Um, and on top of that, they've got this enormous uh, technological problem which has forced the recall uh, and uh, evidently have not handled it very well from a public relations point of view. In the short term, and it's difficult to know what that short term is, I suspect it's going to be at least one to two years. Um, Toyota will continue to have difficulties as a direct result of the recall and how it's been handled. However, my view is that in the long term, uh, this issue will probably go away. And obviously it depends very much on how Toyota handles the recall from here on in and them learning the appropriate lessons uh, from uh, the public relations issues that they have been faced with. But I think one has to remember basically that Toyota did not get to where it is now. In other words, as a preeminent manufacturing and engineering company by being good at PR and corporate communications or even marketing. It got to where it is by being excellent at manufacturing and engineering. And they will see this basically as a manufacturing and engineering problem which they will fix by being good at manufacturing and engineering. So what the Toyota story tells us is that even if you get the R&D right and build on the innovative ideas within your own economy, you also need to have the PR tools to put out your message. It's the total package of skills within a global firm that counts, not just its core business activity. Olcott again. I think Toyota management will be the first to admit that uh, they have not handled everything perfectly. I would say that this is um, a problem endemic possibly in Japanese manufacturing firms. They make excellent things, but corporate communications and public relations have not been a thing that they have uh, been uh, very good at, uh, quite frankly. And I think if, uh, they, if Japanese manufacturing firms are going to continue uh, to play a large role uh, in the global economy, they need to learn lessons uh, from this, uh, the importance of communicating uh, to a very, very wide audience, not just of consumers, but also regulators. Um, and I, and I, think, uh, so I think the, the, the total recall issue will, will serve to be a, 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 a very strong, uh, uh, will present some very strong lessons for, for management in Japan, but also manufacturing firms at large around the world. And really these problems, companies can emerge out of them stronger because they retrench, they restructure, they talk about their problems that they may not have known about. So in the long term, it might be good for the company. 
I believe it is. And I think the encouraging thing, as I mentioned before, was that uh, the management had already identified some of the issues that uh, were indirectly or directly uh, a cause of the recall problem, had begun to, ish, uh, to address them. Uh, but I, I think the fact that this has come about, the, uh, the actions the companies are, uh, is taking to fix them, uh, this will make Toyota a stronger uh, company in the long term. And I think that can only be a good thing. Straddling the world with a global workforce presents its own unique problems. Here, the world of the Internet appears to be making those global communications easier. But while diverse teams within multinational companies thrive on innovation, they may be harder to manage. Professor Linda Gratton is one of only two women in the Times Top 50 Thinkers in the world. We've now built a huge database of about 150 international teams, and many of them work across time zones and across cultures. And, and obviously that makes a difference because each culture has its own norms of behaviour, um, each, you know, each culture has its own way of doing things, and so there has to be sensitivity around that. We wrote um, an article some years ago on the problems of fragmentation. And what, what we talked about there is that what happens in teams is they break up, they break up, and they often break up around, along cultural lines. Uh, and there's all sorts of ways of, of, of healing those, those fault lines. I mean, the, I guess the most obvious way of doing it, which we described in the paper, is that teams really work under three conditions. And this is what I describe in my book, Hotspots. The first is people have got to be prepared to work cooperatively with each other. The second is there has to be some networks that connect them together. And thirdly, there has to be an overriding purpose or igniting question or a strategy that, that engages them. And actually, of all of those three, the final one is most important for virtual teams. Virtual teams work best when they're doing something interesting and they work worst when there isn't much happening. But if you can overcome those problems of managing teams from a distance, that innovative power that diverse teams bring will feed your business success. It's a new approach in the sense that 20 years ago, organisations didn't have the sort of global reach they've got now. And 20 years ago, they didn't have the technology. So it is relatively new. I mean, what we know about diverse teams is that diverse teams are potentially more innovative, but they're harder to manage. So if you... Um, if you want to have an innovative, if, if the task that you've got is an easy one, then you don't need a diverse team, you know, because actually you don't want it to be, in, you just want people to get on very fast and do it. If the task you've got is an innovative one, then you're better to bring not just nationalities, but also different perspectives. I mean, for example, if I look at my own team in the hotspots movement, I mean, we have an Italian designer, we have a German um, and by the way, all these people live in the ca their countries. We have a German uh, anal uh, you know, analyst. We have a French marketeer. We have an American administrator. Um, and we have a, um, uh, an Albanian uh, head of communications. Well, that's just extraordinary. Now, I didn't choose them because of their nationality. I chose them because of who they are. But by doing so, I brought together a group of very, very international people. And I just think it's a lot more fun than being surrounded by people who are just like you, or just like me, I mean. For those who may be put off from stepping into those global markets by the recent crisis with the Eurozone and the Greek economy, Dr Christos Patelis of Cambridge Judge Business School sees every crisis as an opportunity too. Others are learning from Greece that in times of plenty, 
Austerity is the new buzzword, and who knows, it might even show leaders the need for a deeper union within Europe too. Dr Patelis. Well, in the first instance, I don't think we should be worried too much about the euro declining a bit more. This is part one. And in fact, as it has been mentioned by other economists, even allowing a degree of uh, inflation uh, uh, in the the eurozone may not be as bad as it is believed to be by some. Uh, In the medium and long run, I would like to have the issues of A, financial regulation to be addressed, and B, and importantly, to consider to what extent you can have a monetary union without at the same time having something which is potentially either more akin to political union, which of course many people do not want to hear about, but at the very least have some sort of mechanisms and institutions that allow for problems to be addressed. Now, Having said all of this, this is not to underplay the fact that countries themselves have to keep their house in order, but what I'm saying is that it's a more systemic issue and it takes at least two to tango, and on this particular occasion it may make more than two to tango. So it's the beginning now of a new debate about the Eurozone. In this context, I believe that it is an opportunity, an opportunity for specific countries like Greece to realise that in good times they have to make arrangements for when the bad times may come, be more proactive and anticipatory, but also for the EU to realize that there is sufficient interdependence there that everybody goes under if one does. In this particular context, if uh, Greek austerity measures at the moment are going to dramatically influence Uh, the prospects of the German economy because much of the Greek deficit is is Germany's export surplus. And in addition to this, uh, the EU has to put also its house in order with being able to anticipate and take measures to solve problems like this. So exactly as you say, finally, Christos, it's an opportunity to look at things again. Well, it is... All crises are opportunities, and if, as somebody has uh, said before, it's such a pity to miss a great crisis, and uh, we should never miss crises. But there's no doubt the smart money is looking beyond Europe to those Indian and Chinese markets. Some of that Jugardi spirit needs to pass down the Western business chains too. Navi Raju, the executive director of the Centre for India and Global Business, at Cambridge Judge Business School once more. I think that if the more we kind of uh, provide this kind of uh, capabilities within India, because I think that India has always been looking for validation from abroad, <laughs> but I think that we are coming to a point where I think India is gaining more in self-confidence, and the fact that we have 1.15 billion consumers is going to be the biggest asset India had. So India has two assets on play today, right? One is a large consumer base, and the second thing is a large talent pool. So now realizes that if it can marshal these two assets to propel its growth you know, in coming decades, it can emerge as a knowledge superpower very quickly. But it does need, uh, to some extent, partnerships and collaboration with you know, multinationals who recognize the potential of India and want to help it grow. So as well as it being a 10-year decade of innovation in India from 2010 to 2020, it's also the polycentric 
innovation decade. Absolutely. I always say that, you know, there is, as you know, the famous saying is that, you know, anybody who comes to visit India uh, eventually ends up uh, being completely transformed. Uh, and I think the same is going to apply for multinationals as they enter India and set business there, open labs, etc. You're going to see that multinationals themselves are going to organizationally come out completely transformed. And indeed, I think that the multinationals of 2020, I would claim, will be polycentric organizations that are shaped by the experience in India. And it's the strength of that growth in India and China, regardless of whoever emerges the stronger, that Western firms must tap into. The successful business story of the future is likely to embrace that Jugadi spirit.